Radio Mano Papachango. What, 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 Earthlings. That uh, screaming idiot at the beginning there was uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. If you uh, ever saw a film called Stranger Than Paradise, you might recognize the beginning to that song. It's called I Put a Spell on You. It's a pretty amazing tune. Check it out if you don't know it. Um, this week's guest is Graham Hancock. Amazing Graham Hancock. He was on Rogan's show. He and uh, Randall Carlson did a three-hour full Rogan and uh, then he was on Duncan's show, and uh, I guess the two, between the two of them, they convinced him it was worth his time to be on my show. So here we go. Trickle down Graham Hancock. He's agreed to be on my show. I went down to his hotel a couple days ago um, after failing to get anywhere near him uh, at his public appearance here in Portland. He was at a bookstore that was uh, swamped, uh, both literally and figuratively, it has not stopped raining in Portland in about two weeks now. It's even local Portland people are saying this is fucking crazy. I'm, I'm standing here in my office looking at my wet wall. There's water running down the inside of my office wall. Um, yeah, ready to blow this popsicle stand. We're going to be out of here in a couple days. We'll be out of here within 24 hours of you hearing this or probably before most of you hear it. We'll be driving down the coast. We're going to stop in San Francisco. I'm going to record another podcast with the great Stanley Krippner in uh, the Bay Area. Um, probably going to stop in on Dan Party, the uh, sleep scientist, and uh, do a podcast with him. Then we're going to head down to uh, Santa Cruz. I've uh, got a tentative plan to drop in on the great Susie Bright, um, one of the sort of, I think she's known as a second wave feminist, sort of a sex positive feminist. It'll be interesting to hear her thoughts on where feminism is going and and uh, the whole sort of sexual culture in the United States. And then we're driving down to L.A. We'll be down there for a couple of weeks. Uh, family Christmas bullshit and going to record a few podcasts down there doing a shrimp parade on the 23rd, I believe is the schedule there and um gonna do a couple other uh, record a couple other podcasts while we're down there and then we fly to bangkok on the 30th we will celebrate new year's somewhere over the pacific and uh that day will just sort of disappear into thin air interesting way to end the year I uh, got, a, got a lot of feedback about my rant, my anti-gun rant uh, last week. And, uh, of course, there were just the, you know, dumbass, you know, sort of fuck you faggot responses, which, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, one of the more thoughtful responses, which I actually was going to read today, but I, I, my computer is a disaster. Everything's a mess, as you can imagine, two days before moving. Um 
so I, I don't see the email. But anyway, the, the gist of the email was thoughtful, uh, interesting, thoughtful guy. But essentially, the gist of his point was, um, don't you think it would, you know, you're right that we're not going to uh, defeat a tyrannical government armed with, you know, armored attack helicopters and drones and the rest of it with our rifles. Um, but don't you think it would slow them down and give them pause and make them think twice? And, you know, so it would have some uh, marginal mitigating effect. And I understand that's that's a reasonable argument, I think. Um, but I don't agree with it because when you look at recent history and you say, well, you know, did it give them pause uh, about sending American soldiers into Afghanistan? Um, despite the fact that 99.999% of the Afghani people had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. And in fact, uh, almost all of the attackers were Saudis, um, but they happened to be you know, meeting in Afghanistan when they planned the thing. So we're going to go attack this country that is famously armed. And not only are they armed, but they're tough motherfuckers up in those mountains. They've been armed for centuries. They, they're one of the most ornery, uh, stubborn, difficult people in the, on the entire planet to defeat in military terms. Uh, just, you know, ask the, the ancient Greeks and the fucking Russians and everybody who's ever tried has failed. Uh, I think in the British Empire, Afghanistan was known as the graveyard of empire, right? Didn't give them pause uh, and didn't give them pause to send people into Iraq, despite the fact that both countries were not only incredibly well armed, but armed by us. We had been selling them arms and giving them arms for a long time. Didn't give them pause. And the reason it doesn't give them pause is that the guys who are making these decisions are nowhere near a battlefield. They're not the guys who are getting shot and their kids aren't getting shot. Their kids will never see a battlefield or they'll be like Prince Harry. Well, they'll, you know, fly around in a helicopter a little bit and pretend that they're actually in the action. Those people aren't anywhere near danger. So, no, I don't think it would give them pause. And it really spotlights the problem with these sorts of things, which is that wars are fought between people who should be on the same side. Invariably. The people who are shooting at each other are people who should be on the same side. They should be shooting the rich motherfuckers in Washington, in Moscow, in London, in Paris, who sent them to do this shit. They're, those are the enemies. The enemy is not the guy who's shooting at you from across the field. He's just another poor schmuck who has no idea what the fuck he's getting into, just like you didn't when you signed up. That's the way war works. It's, it's people whose interests are actually in alignment, are set in opposition to each other like a goddamn dogfight, where the dogs should actually look at each other and say, what the hell are we doing? And they should turn on their masters. That's a real war. That's a war worth fighting. But as long as it's just rich people sending poor people off to kill each other, I don't think so. And guns aren't going to solve that problem. So my feeling is, and, and, and believe me, this is, not, uh, this is not a position I really thought I'd be taking. Because, you know, I often quote Frank Zappa saying that politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. In other words, it's a diversion. It's a joke. It's a... It's a little game to make you feel it's like those 
the steering wheel on those toy cars, you know, the kid's turning it and he thinks it actually does something because it looks like he's doing something, but it, it has no effect on the trajectory of the vehicle. That's, uh, that's how politics generally is. Having said that, it does have some effect. It's minimal. I admit it. It's minimal. I've got Obama t-shirts in the bottom of a drawer somewhere that I haven't worn in years. I thought maybe this will be it. Maybe this will be real. And here we are. People still stuck up in Guantanamo. Never even been charged with a crime. 13 years later, they're in a cage. They're getting things jammed up their asses and down their throats. And they're humiliated. They're destroyed. They're broken. For what? For nothing. They let a guy out a week or two ago. And they admitted it had been a case of mistaken identity. He'd been in there 13 years 13 years, never charged with a crime, and we're defending freedom. Uh Yeah, right. We're defending freedom. So believe me, it's not a natural position. I'm not someone who, uh, you know, runs around knocking on people's doors to get out the vote. But I do feel like it still matters to some small degree in this country who you vote for. And the fact is that if we use the power of social media to mobilize people to really vote, to demand the right to vote, to picket state houses, to uh, boycott companies, to demand that we see who's giving money, where, where this lobbyist money is coming from, where the money going into these super PACs is coming from. If we organized and actually did something, if tens of millions of people actually did something, there would be a response. It might be a trick. It might be bullshit. It might be meet the new boss, same as the old boss, which it generally is. But that's our only chance. Guns, that's a joke. It's a joke. You're not going to change the government with your guns. You're going to go shoot people at Planned Parenthood. That's not going to do anything about abortion. That's not going to do anything about anything. All you're doing is shooting other poor, desperate people like yourself. Uh... You know, whatever whatever your cause is. The Unabomber, super smart guy, probably has an IQ way past mine, but what the fuck did he change? Sending those bombs. What did he change? Nothing. And if he had sent 50 more, still nothing would have changed. So, there you have it. I, uh, I agree with the sentiments of people who are suspicious of government. I agree with the feeling that we need to do something to protect ourselves. I agree that governments tend toward tyranny. I agree with all those things. But I don't see any evidence that having an armed populace does anything to um, slow down or change the course of government. Um, quite the opposite. It just means more poor, innocent people who don't really know what's going on are going to be shooting each other. Okay, that's my rant. No more ranting. Let's go to Amazon. There have been some really, uh, people have been buying a lot of stuff on Amazon recently, and I very much appreciate that. As always, it's a great way to support the podcast. Uh, For those of you who don't know, if you just go to my site, chrisryanphd.com, you'll see an Amazon thing, a link, a banner, whatever it is. Click on that and then bookmark the page you land on and then use that as your Amazon page. So you always go through that landing page. 
Uh, and between 4 and 8% of whatever you spend at Amazon will go to support the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything more. They don't change the price or anything. It's just money that comes out of Amazon's pocket into uh, supporting the podcast. Some examples of the sorts of things people are buying. I see Honest Amish Beard Balm Leave-In Conditioner. All natural, vegan, friendly, organic oils and butters. That's right. Condition your beard like an honest Amish person. Hard to say that, honest Amish. Lots of books being ordered. I see uh, Thad Russell's book, a bunch of orders for that. I see a bunch of orders for uh, Magicians of the Gods by today's guest, Graham Hancock. Uh, Bonobo, The Forgotten Ape. You're going to love that book. And uh, yeah, that's a wonderful book by Franz Duvall. Beautiful photographs. Um, Anti-Fragile, somebody bought that. I hope you enjoy that. I found that to be a very interesting argument by um, Nassim Taleb. I see a few copies of The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships by friend of the podcast, um, Neil Strauss, of course. The Unbearable Lightness of Being, one of my all-time favorites. And, oh, here's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That's an interesting book. Uh, 25th Anniversary Edition. That's one of the first serious books I read. My dad gave it to me when I was probably 11. And I can't claim I understood more than maybe a quarter of it. There's a lot of philosophy, a lot of deep questions in there. But I love the stuff about the motorcycle. And um, 20 years later, I bought myself a BMW motorcycle. And it was probably largely because of that book. It's really cool when somebody buys a big ticket item. It, you know, there are lots of these little ones for a buck, uh, 99 cents, whatever. But sometimes somebody will buy an iPhone or a Dell desktop computer or what is this? A Microsoft Surface Pro. 25 bucks comes to the podcast uh, from that, even though it's only two and a half percent. But the thing costs twelve hundred bucks. So a uh, smaller percentage, but you still end up uh, diverting a pretty nice chunk of change to the podcast. Super wonderful way to uh, support the podcast. Somebody got some Bose True Sound headphones. Oh, that I think that might have been me. See, even I used the link. <laughs> uh, let's see, what do we got? Taste of the Wild Dry Dog Food. High Prairie Canine Formula with Roasted Bison and Venison. Sounds like something Joe Rogan would eat or give to his dog or both. Uh, thank you, whoever did that. You spent 45 bucks, and we get 337 Another high-ticket item here, the Teeter EP960 Limited Inversion Table with Back Pain Relief Kit. 429 bucks. we get 32 Very nice. I've got one of those. I don't know if it's the Teeter, but back in Spain, we've got one of those things you stand on, and then sort of it flips you upside down, and you hang there like a bat. Great. Wonderful thing. Um... Somebody bought their kitchen sink, everything and the kitchen sink, the Hauser Contempo series undermount stainless steel. So this is like a contractor or somebody who's doing home repair. Uh, they spent 540 bucks on the sink. We get 40 bucks out of that, seven and a half percent. Super cool. And it costs them absolutely nothing. So thank you, everyone who's doing that. Uh, somebody got a citizen men's. Oh, I hope. Well, this might be a Christmas gift. Don't want to ruin it, but. Somebody's getting a Citizen Men's Navahawk Stainless Steel Echo Drive watch. Really nice watch. All right. And they bought it through the website. So thank you for all that. I won't uh, bore you with more. I thought this would be really boring when I started reading these things. 
these Amazon orders. I thought people would be like, dude, what are you wasting our time with this for? But suddenly the orders went through the roof. It, it tripled probably when I started doing that. And nobody's complained. So, um, you know, maybe those of you who are thinking of complaining will actually do it now. <laughs> I'll have to deal with that. But uh, I'm very, very gratified for the increase in the, uh, the orders that go through the website and the additional support it brings to the podcast, which is going to be even more important now that we're taking it on the road. I've gotten a lot of emails, people saying, hey, what's going to happen? Are you going to stop the podcast when you go to Spain? Yada, yada. No, I intend to keep doing it. It might not be quite as regular as it's been, uh, particularly when I'm traveling, um, because I might not have access to Wi-Fi or whatever. Um, but I intend to keep doing uh, one episode a week uh, in addition to the bonus episodes that I throw up when I get the motivation. And I hope actually I'll have more time and energy to put toward this uh, as the book project uh, gets gets tied away and, and wrapped up. And because I really enjoy it. This to me is the most fun I have uh, work-wise. I, I get pleasure from the writing. I get pleasure when people tell me that things I've written have, are important for them and have, have helped them make positive changes in their lives. But it's so, it's so sort of um, indirect and distant. You know, I write something and then five years later, someone's telling me how important it was to them. And that's wonderful, but it, there's a great distance there. Whereas with the podcast, I really enjoy having access to someone like Graham Hancock, who, who makes time for me to drop in in the hotel and and chat for an hour, an hour and a half. And, and I really enjoy the interaction with the people out there who are listening. And it continues to blow my mind that anybody gives a damn about any of this, um, anything that I have to say. But I, I appreciate it. I love it. And it it gives me energy. It doesn't drain me of energy. So I have every intention to keep rolling with this as long as I can. And as long as you're out there listening and buying shit through Amazon. So thanks for all that. And I also intend, by the way, not to ever bring back advertising. So we're going to keep this podcast bullshit free as long as I'm making a living wage, you know, and can justify it in the rest of my life. Um, then, then we're going to keep rocking and rolling. So thank you. No more bullshit. No more ranting. No more Amazon stuff. Let's go straight to the conversation with Graham Hancock. It's a little bit edited because he had a cold and he had to stop every once in a while to blow his nose or sneeze. So if you hear any little rough cuts, there was nothing. I didn't cut any content. Um, It was just, um, you know, removing the the mucus from the conversation, which uh, I promised Graham I would do. (laughs) So nobody wants mucus in their headphones. Enjoy the conversation, and I will catch you next week, where I'll be talking to you from San Francisco, probably, or maybe L.A. by then. In any case, this is the final episode where I'm recording the intro in Portland, Oregon. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song called Lucky by uh, Colin Crevero and Man Made Lake. You can hear my conversation with Colin in the archives. One of my favorite episodes, he drove all the way down from Victoria, B.C. with a couple of guitars and we hung out in the park all day and he played some songs live. Um, So anyway, Colin, I know you're listening. Love you, brother. Hope you're feeling good. And uh, this is Lucky, Colin Crevero and Man Made Lake.
inside your head Or a drink for two I don't care what you did to me I'll pave the way for you March along to your favorite song Tear my heart in two We were the lucky ones Isn't that true? I painted more like I didn't care Change the channel to Broken glass and dying fish An earth is quite field March along to your favorite song Tear my heart in two Isn't that true? Fake a smile untie your hair Or a drink for two I don't care what you did to me I'll pave the way for you March along your favorite song Tear my heart in two We were the lucky ones Isn't that true? beautiful Hotel Monaco in downtown dark and gloomy Portland with Graham Hancock. Thank you for doing this, Graham. That's a pleasure. Really I, nice to be with you, Chris. I know you're a very busy man and you've already done the, uh, the Rogan Trussell uh, sides of the triangle, so Indeed. I'm very happy <laughs> to finish it off there, um, triangles being so important. You know. Indeed. Um, so, because you've you've spent hours with uh, Joe and Duncan, as I mentioned before, I turned on the mic. I, I don't want to cover all the same stuff and have you. Absolutely. I, I don't want to ask Paul McCartney to play yesterday again. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's let's just start with a quick summary of what your new book is about. Sure. Uh, Fingerprints of the Gods. People uh, have probably read if they're mm -hmm. listening to this. If they haven't, I highly recommend it. Although I do have a bone to pick with you. Mm -hmm. Fingerprints of the Gods, I remember, I read it years ago. There was a business about planetary alignment and the shit was going to hit the fan and everything was going to flip upside down. I told all my friends and we all slept outside. 
that that week or that right, night. Right, 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 right. <laughs> because all the buildings were going to fall down. Sure. And then nothing happened. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually not in the, in the business of predictions, but I'm in the business sometimes of reporting predictions that others make. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, was, uh, that was the case in, in Fingerprints of the Gods. Look, fundamentally, Fingerprints was published in 1995, and fundamentally what it proposed was that there was a forgotten episode in human history, that we'd lost a whole civilization from the record, way back during the Ice Age when our ancestors are supposed to have just been hunter-gatherers. Right. I'm talking about an advanced civilization. And I proposed that it was destroyed in a global cataclysm between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. Uh, I looked around at uh, a number of possibilities to explain that cataclysm. Um, it clearly was associated with the end of the Ice Age, but there was no hard science on it at the time. Right. Um, and, and what has changed, one of the reasons that I've written a new book 20 years later, um, is that the science on the cataclysm that indeed occurred in precisely the window I indicated is in now. Um, it's still controversial. There's a, a large group, 30 plus, of very mainstream credentialed scientists who have been presenting evidence since 2007 that the Earth was hit by several fragments of a very substantial comet uh, back in 12,800 years ago, uh, and that there might well have been a second series of strikes 11,600 years ago, right. um, and, and that this was an extinction-level event uh, on a scale almost equivalent to the extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, uh, and, and uh, that it's an event more than big enough uh, to account for the loss of a whole civilization from the archaeological record, particularly since sea levels rose about 400 feet at the end of the Ice Age. And, yeah. you know, 10 million square miles of land that was above water then is underwater now. So uh, I, I think it's a, it, it's a reasonable inquiry to, to, to make, to go back into this story and to look at the new evidence that's come out, not only of a global cataclysm, but also of archaeological sites that date back to that period and, right. and actually can't be explained in the mainstream historical model. You and I have so many things in common, um, and we'll get to some of the disagreements in a bit, yeah. uh, but you know, I was thinking about this on the drive over here today. We're both, I, I heard you say to, on, on Rogan's podcast that you don't consider yourself a scientist, so Definitely when people not. accuse you of pseudoscience, yeah. you're, you're like, well, that sort of misses, because I'm not claiming to be a scientist, yeah. I'm a journalist, yeah. I'm reporting. Um, and which, and you're also not doing original research. You're, you know, it's I'm, I'm synthesizing data. You're synthesizing. If there's exactly. anything original in it, it's the big picture that emerges exactly. from it. But you're I'm, you're I'm a telling a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what we did in Sex at Dawn. All right. that research was out there. Mm -hmm. You know, bonobos and the, you know, the testicles of this can, you know, right. all that kind of stuff. It was all out there, and so I was really paranoid that someone else was going to write this book before right. I got around to it. Sure, yeah. Not paranoid enough to actually work harder, but, right. you know, right. passively paranoid. And, um, and I, I get the same sort of criticisms mm -hmm. that you get, I think, where mm -hmm. people, insiders saying, who the hell are you? Yeah. What graduate school did you go to? Yeah. How come I've never, you know? Yeah. And what they don't get is that if I had gone through the same programs they've gone through, mm. or if yeah. you had, mm. you, you would have lost the objectivity exactly. to tell the story you're exactly. telling. Exactly. The only reason you or I are in a position to tell stories like this is because we are on the outside. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the virtue right. that we bring to this, the, this kind of scientific issue. And I, I regard the, 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 the label 
pseudoscientist, um, which is frequently applied to me as a cheap and easy way yeah. for my critics to avoid, avoid engaging with the data that I actually present. Right. Um, and and um, I, I, I think it's most unfortunate that that happens, but I see it happening again and again. It seems to be quite quite normal, um, as though you must, um, you know, you must have a PhD, you must be part of the club uh, in order to even discuss these, these issues. And that's um, a, very, a very arrogant and narrow-minded position, and I don't think it's helpful to science either. No. And, and, you know, you're exposing the scientific community as the close-minded, um, insecure, highly defensive community that it is. Mm. Um, and I, I think I, I heard Joe just sort of, you know, um, losing his mind over and over about that the other day because it seemed like he was thinking like, you know, wait a minute, scientists look at the facts, don't yeah. they? Scientists are open to alternative explanations, aren't they? And no, no. actually, uh, there are some who are. Sure there are. But, and, uh, and, and in the broad scheme of things, over a substantial period of time, that is what science does. Right. Science does um, get rid eventually of old bad ideas. And old start, bad scientists. And old bad scientists. Yeah. And, start to, and start to embrace uh, new ideas. But it can take a long time for, for that to happen. Wasn't there some quote that, that science advances not by the the birth of new ideas, but by the death of old scientists. Yes, abs absolutely. Yeah. And this is clear. I mean, most scientists have read Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, but they immediately forget the lessons right. in that book, that, yeah. that this is actually how science progresses, that, that uh, an existing state of knowledge has to be completely overwhelmed and smashed to pieces by new evidence which can't be explained by the former paradigm until the former paradigm is dropped. And that can sometimes take centuries. It doesn't, yeah. just, doesn't take just a week. Uh, I think things are moving faster in the modern world with the, with the internet. It, it's, yeah. it's changing a lot. Yeah, thanks to things like podcasts. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Unfiltered, the, the unfiltered access to, yeah. to your readers and to, to other people with open minds. Yeah. And, and also that, 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 that people out there in the, in the general public, they can, they can do much quicker research now than used to be done. They can check out information right, right. on things. We don't have to go to dusty libraries anymore and have a membership and you know, check in and work our way through the shelves. The internet yeah. is an incredible resource of good and bad information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, microfiche. Remember that? I remember microfiche. <laughs> yeah. I rem I Those were the days, yeah. 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 Um, so, one of the areas that, that uh, I think you and I probably disagree in, which, which we could talk all day about things we do agree with, uh, mm -hmm. where we agree with each other, but um, I, what do you, when you say an advanced civilization mm. uh, was lost, what do you mean by advanced? Uh, I mean a civilization that is quite um, discontinuous with and out of character with the general population of the world mm -hmm. uh, during the Ice Age. Um, a point I often make, and I'll make it again now, is that the world we live in today hosts an advanced technological civilization, our own, uh, but it also hosts hunter-gatherer peoples. There are hunter-gatherers in the Amazon, actually, who don't even know we exist, uh, Kalahari Desert, for, for example. So the notion of advanced civilizations coexisting with uh, people at a different stage of economic development uh, is, shouldn't be contrary or odd to us, because that, that happens today. Um, and this is what I believe will turn out to have been the case during the last Ice Age, that it wasn't just hunter-gatherers, as we're 
taught in the schools today, that there was an advanced civilization present. And when I say an advanced civilization, I don't necessarily mean, you know, flying to the moon uh, or, or using cell phones. I don't think that was what was involved at all. The, the evidence that I look at is, for example, ancient maps which are copied from older source maps, uh, now lost. And, and in a number of cases where we have references to those older source maps, the suggestion is that they came out of the Library of Alexandria before it was burned down and you know, made their way from there to Constantinople and then went into a more, a more general circulation. Now, the, the thing about these, these maps, so what we have are medieval maps, maps from the 1500s, the 1400s, which are copied or based upon older source maps. And it seems that transferred from those older source maps is evidence of a global map-making project that was carried out during the Ice Age. So we can see features on some of these maps that were only present during the Ice Age and have been underwater for 12,000 years. Suddenly they show up on these maps, whether it's a vastly extended and expanded uh, Malaysian Peninsula and Indonesia, whether it's a little island called High Brazil lying off the coast of Ireland, uh, whether it's uh, a map that shows Sri Lanka joined to India, whether it's a map that shows uh, the three main islands of Japan joined into one landmass. Mm -hmm. um, what, what these maps are accurately showing is the world as it looked during the last ice age. So this first of all suggests that somebody at that time was in a position to explore the world uh, to at least as much as we were doing in the late 17th or early 18th, sorry, in, in fact the late 18th or early 19th century because these maps also incorporate very precise relative longitudes, very That's, accurate I was going to say, right, they have to have technology, some sort of independent clock or something. Right. To, the fact is we yeah. couldn't do longitudes until the late 18th century, right. the late 1700s. And, and, and this was because it was only then that, that a, a marine chronometer that could keep right. accurate time at sea was, uh, was invented. Um, and, and in fact, for a long time, there was a quest to settle the longitude problem. Why? Because ships were constantly sailing into coastlines and people were getting drowned because they yeah. didn't know how far east or west they were. Yeah, the uh, the longitude problem. There was a, a great book, I think, called Longitude. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I read it a about long Harris time ago. The, or Harris and the Clockmaker, who who created the chronometer and who got a, a special award. Yeah, there was a big prize. Big, big money was yeah. uh, was was at stake because this is a, a huge economic implication. So when I see maps that show features of the world that were last seen twelve thousand years ago, uh, and that those maps incorporate Operate, uh, accurate relative longitudes, uh, that speaks to me of a fairly advanced civilization right. which, was, which was capable of, of um, uh, you know, substantial scientific feats. Um, and that's what I think I'm... I mean, the other, the other aspect of it uh, is the placement of very large blocks of stone, uh, megalithic sites, right. um, where in some cases the, the workmanship just boggles belief. Uh, for example, Sacsayhuaman uh, up in uh, Peru above Cusco. Mm. What you have there are in some cases are blocks of stone that weigh in excess of 300 tons yeah. um, and which are multi-angled and joined on to other blocks of stone in a kind of three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. 
Um, and many attempts have been made by archaeologists to explain how this has been done, and I think they feel they've satisfactorily done so, but I don't find it satisfactory at all. Uh, and when I, when I go and research in the, in, in the Andes, what I see is evidence not for one episode of culture, the Incas, you know, in the 1500s, and the Incas really were only a civilization for 100 or 150 years before the Spanish arrived. Um, what I see is the Incas overbuilding upon and respecting much older structures. That mm. the, the character of the workmanship is such that there, the, were it to be anywhere else, you would say this is obviously the work of different cultures, um, but somehow that that seems to conflict with an archaeological prejudice, and so almost everything has been given to the Incas. I think we're looking at much, much older material, um, and, and um, indeed we are now discovering very ancient megalithic sites, which where, where there's no argument about their antiquity, like Gobekli Tepe right. in Turkey, uh, where again um, huge megalithic blocks are moved and set into position, and in some cases, some mysterious sites like Baalbek in the Lebanon. Again, there's an argument here. Baalbek is supposed to be entirely a Roman temple. I don't think it is. I think that parts of it are much older. Um, and I went there and made a special study of Baalbek. And there is a most curious U-shaped megalithic wall that surrounds the platform of the Temple of Jupiter, but at no point touches it. And that megalithic wall incorporates three blocks that weigh 900 tons each and that are raised 30 feet uh, above the ground. Um, so my, my sense is that we're, that we're dealing with a civilization that had certain scientific abilities and that may not have uh, done things, may not have manipulated matter in quite the same way that, that we do. I, I want, the, the thing I was getting at is this book that I'm, I've just finished is called Civilized to Death, and it's a critique of civilization. And essentially what I'm arguing in that book is that civilization is a sort of uh, mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. It's um, analogous to the swarming of locusts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but all locusts start out as grasshoppers. Right. I didn't and know that. It's amazing. It's the yeah. same DNA, same animal. But what happens is when they are um, placed in a certain, there's, there's a tipping point where if the population density is too high, um, they, it triggers a physiological change. Their brains change, their legs change, the coloring changes, and their behavior changes, and they start to swarm. That's totally spooky. Isn't it bizarre? Mm. Yeah, it's a real uh, Jekyll Hyde situation. And then, so they swarm, and, uh, and this, this is caused by the uh, unusual rain patterns in the Sahara occasionally. That and so the rains. There's a lot of food. The population increases. Then the rains stop, and the uh, the oasis starts to uh, dissipate and mm -hmm. become smaller. And that's what triggers the population density. And then they swarm and they right. go crazy. Right. Um, and then when the swarming is over, when they run out of food, m most of them die. Mm -hmm. Those that are left return to being grasshoppers mm -hmm. again. You mean they, they morph back into They the, morph back. The yeah. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really incredible. It's pretty strange. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and, and you know about things like quorum sensing and certain bacteria. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are these um, swarm or, or emergent uh, phenomena mm -hmm. of organisms that, you know, a certain number of salmon suddenly become a school and it right. starts behaving as this superorganism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so my feeling is that civilization is a superorganism mm -hmm. that uh, operates 
according to its own agenda, its own mm -hmm. interests. Like mm -hmm. any other system, it tries to replicate itself right. and survive. Right. And often those interests goes, go against the interests of the individuals that make up the system. Manifestly so. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I hear terms like advanced civilization, mm -hmm. it always said, you know, mm -hmm. lights start mm -hmm. beeping in my, mm -hmm. in my head. Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't <clears throat> load it with value judgments. We well, shouldn't assume it. that an advanced. advanced civilization is necessarily a good civilization. Right. Uh, or a good thing. Right. Uh, or even in any way good for humanity. Right. That, that is not the case. But that comes down to philosophical issues like actually what what are we here for? Is there any purpose to human life? Yeah. What is its, what actually is its function? Uh, I, I mean, the model that we're operating with now in advanced technological Western societies um, would seem to be that um, human life is utterly meaningless. It's a simple accident of biology and chemistry, uh, and that our only purpose is to produce material goods and consume material goods produced by others. By uh, destroying the natural world. And, 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 yeah. uh, and it regards the natural world as a dead entity mm -hmm. uh, to be exploited uh, to be exploited by by human beings, um, and that is the, the, and there's an aspect of science that comes into this as well, which is materialist reductionist science, which yeah. is a very dominant voice in science today. That everything can be reduced to matter, uh, and that there is nothing else to reality than than that. Uh, another proposition um, f from many ancient traditions that uh, that we are spirits uh, incarnated in a human form. Uh, that we enter this university of duality in order to learn and grow and develop, uh, that possibility is not considered at all by our, by our society. Um, but in, in, there's no reason to rule it out. It could, possibly, it could possibly be that. And if that were the goal, if that were the game we're really playing, that we're here to learn and grow and develop, then civilization isn't serving us well at all. Yeah. Um, it's devolving all responsibilities onto large corporations, large states, large bureaucracies. And, and leaving the individual in a place where there's very little responsibility at all. So I don't necessarily think that... that so that's that my one point yeah. of disagreement with you, and you don't disagree. <laughs> You've re all right. But there's something else to say, which is that if you look at the ancient uh, mythology on this, it's actually rather interesting, because the, 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 the paramount story of a lost civilization is Plato's story of Atlantis. Right. Um, and, and Plato... Uh, tells us in the, in the Timaeus and the Critias quite a bit about Atlantis as a civilization, that it was um, certainly advanced, uh, that it had metallurgy, that it had all kinds of incredible stone workmanship, that it was a navigating, seagoing civilization that could extend its, its power around the world, that it was initially uh, dedicated to the nurture and the growth of spirit, but that over time it became corrupt, it became wicked, it became unkind. Um, and uh, interestingly, there's a very specific phrase that it ceased to wear its prosperity with moderation. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and, and Plato depicts that ultimately as the reason why Atlantis is slapped down by the universe, that it got so out of harmony Hubris. with the universe. Yeah. Hubris, indeed. That Have you read Wright, uh, The Short History of Progress? No, I haven't. Oh, I think you'd enjoy that a lot. Ronald Wright, he's um, a Canadian. Right. Um, very much uh, a critic of the civilizational project, yeah. and he talks about progress traps, yes. uh, the ratcheting effect of civilizations, yes. and how uh, they all go through the same process. It's yes. an organic process, yes. essentially, a life yes. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so short history of progress, he goes for the Sumerians and uh, Easter Island and six or seven different mm. uh, societies. 
and, uh, and shows the similarities of how uh, they rise, mm. they become hubristic. Mm. They're, it's sort of a scam where they're pulling, uh, like a pyramid scheme, where they're pulling resources from the fringes to keep Indeed. the center, and then the whole thing just falls apart. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful book. Yeah, and this is, what, this is what happens again and again, and it could perfectly well happen to our own civilization also. It's not a problem. I mean, it very easily, yeah. it very easily can happen. I think we have r rather fragile civilization, actually. It, it appears to be strong, uh, but, but it's based on specialisms, and it's filled yeah. with individuals who have no idea how to survive. Well, it only appears to be strong if you don't look beyond the surface. That's right. right? I mean, just in time, all this just in time. Yeah, food into the cities, three days. Yeah. Uh, break that, break that, you know, <laughs> break on. that chain of supply, right. and, and you're into a horrific situation of yeah. rioting and starvation in cities within a very, very short period of time. So I think, actually, we, we do have a very fragile civilization. And I remember in, in uh, Africa, I, I spent quite a lot of my life in Africa, and I remember there were, there were times in famine situations in Africa when the people who really get through famines triumphantly and well, they're hardly touched by it. They're the hunter-gatherers. Right. They're not the agriculturalists. The agriculturalists are the ones who starve. Yeah. And the agriculturalists often in, in, places, in, in places like Namibia, for example, would be turning to the hunter-gatherers for support. Um, this is uh, a lesson worth, worth learning, you know. Um, well, people, people talk about, I get this all the time. I'm sure you have like your list of five, the five criticisms that you, you know, get a million times. Mm. One of mine is, um, well, if hunter-gatherers are so great, how come they're almost extinct and we're, we've taken over the world? Mm. Well, they lasted 200,000 years, exactly. at least, as yeah. modern humans. Yeah. We've lasted a couple hundred, and we're teetering on yeah, the edge of destruction. Yeah, we're just a little pimple on the ass of the world, really. <laughs> I mean, this modern well, civilization... you're a poet, too. Nice. This modern civilization is, is, has, has no time depth to it. It's, yeah. very, it's very recent, and how arrogant of us to imagine that the way we're doing things is the right way, right. and everybody else was wrong. That is pure hubris. What we need to consider is that there are many, many lessons to learn from other cultures of the past, and a lot of things we're doing may be radically wrong and self-destructive um, and and you know this is this uh, is again and again reinforced in ancient mythology also yeah there isn't an, any account that I'm aware of, of of a global cataclysmic event in ancient mythology which wipes away a former age and 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 allows a new age to come into play which doesn't in some way implicate humanity in that in that process that we were involved in our own downfall well, although there, you know, there are natural cataclysms, you know, the, like you're talking about the uh, the comet impacts yes. in North America yes. and Lake Toba 70,000 years ago. Supposedly reduced the world's human, human population to a couple of thousand individuals at yeah. that time. DNA seems Based to suggest that. Based on genetic anyway. testing, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a pretty strong... And actually that Mount Toba thing is quite interesting for me because, because in a sense, it constrains the period uh, in which the lost civilization that mm. I've been writing about for a long time could, could emerge. And I think right. it must have emerged after 70,000 years ago yeah. um, and, and was gone by 11,600 years ago. That's, a, that's roughly the time frame in, in which I'd put it. But yes, even when it's a natural disaster, the construal that is put upon it in myths and traditions from the past implicates humanity in it, yeah. uh, that we are not... Uh, distinct or separate from the universe. That's right. a, perhaps another mistake that the modern world is making, that we regard ourselves as separate from and above 
uh, everything else. Yeah. Where, whereas, in fact, we're part of everything else. We're, we're in, intricately interlinked with the cosmos that surrounds us. And there are ancient systems of knowledge. Now, scientists would say this is all woo-woo, um, but, but which, which strongly suggest that the, the, the behavior of, of humanity has implications beyond our world and beyond ourselves and, and, and radiates out into the cosmos as a whole. What it comes down to is we don't know why we're here or even if there is a why at all. Uh, and if there is a why, we don't know what it is. Or a here. Or a here, actually. <laughs> here, here itself. Could it all be a dream. When you penetrate it, it becomes yeah. quite illusory and just yeah. spinning atoms with no, no solidity to them. It's a, it's, a very odd, it's a very odd thing. And there are many ancient traditions that see the here and now, the so-called reality, as a temporary and illusory thing. Uh, and that beyond that is a, is a field of, a, of another and deeper reality, which, which is what we're truly connected to. I don't know if that's right, but those are the ideas that are out there. Yeah. Well, and, and as you said, there's an incredible arrogance in the scientific assumption around materialism and around um, not... I find it very frustrating when I deal with scientists who say uh, they're not interested in something where the mechanism can't be explained, yeah. like hypnosis, for yeah. example. Yeah. And yet... Placebo is taken into consideration in every medical test that's ever yeah. done. Nobody's ever explained placebo. Nobody's ever explained it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but they're just yeah. like, well, well, placebo, you got to do a double blind, yeah. you got to do. But so they sort of like name it. Yes. Put it in a file yeah. and pretend like it's been explained. Yeah. The Big Bang. Well, there was the Big Bang and yeah. you know, oh, where did the Big Bang happen? Yeah. Well, there was a Big Bang, you know, it like has all it, the characteristics it, of a fairy tale. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It, and not to be disrespectful, because there's incredible scientific work being done, but there needs to be the humility of, of recognizing that, you know, science is a flashlight, and where you shine the light, it illuminates. Yeah. But there's a lot of darkness around perfect, that light. Perfect analogy. That's, that's, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I bumped up against this a, a lot over my writing career, but perhaps particularly with regard to the issue of consciousness, which... which um, uh, is regarded by an astonishingly large faction of, of uh, credentialed scientists as simply an epiphenomenon of brain activity. Right. That, 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 that it can all be reduced to this, you know, a few pounds of jelly inside, yeah. inside our skulls and state that as though it is an empirically proven fact when it isn't an empirically proven fact at all. It's a, it's a theory, it's a reference frame. It might be true but it equally well might not be true. And what it does is it discourages inquiry into other areas of reality that don't fit that particular reference frame. So the way that science, for example, has responded to uh, Rupert Sheldrake's work um, it has been very dismissive, whereas in fact Rupert is, Rupert is producing um, scientific experiments that are statistically significant, yeah. uh, which indicate that phenomena like telepathy take place. You see, if, if you're a materialist science scientist, you can't buy telepathy because you can't figure out the mechanism that makes that, makes that possible. You right. want to see some kind of wire or wireless connection. It's got to be repeatable, two. predictable, yeah. measurable. Yeah. Exactly. And, and therefore, a whole area of really intriguing research, which might shed light on aspects of the human condition uh, is just dismissed as quote-unquote pseudoscience. Yeah. Um, where, whereas, in fact, it's not pseudoscience at all. It's great science. We should be investigating these mysterious areas, and all too often we don't, we don't do so. 
Are you familiar with um, the aquatic ape theory? Yeah, I am. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, you know, we got this groove here just under our noses. That was one of the things that, that made, me, made me think there might be something to that. Because, because the suggestion is Elaine Morgan. Elaine Morgan popularized it. But she popularized it, but, yeah. but she wasn't the Wonderful only. lady, by the yeah, way. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I had some correspondence with her years and years ago. Yeah. Um, the suggestion, I think, of that, of that thesis is that at some point in our ancestry, our, our ancestors evolved in an aquatic environment, and they involved certain characteristics that animals that don't evolve in aquatic environments don't have. Right. Um, and and um, hence our proclivity for living near water and our uh, ability to swim and to hold our breath and, and, and all of these things. And then the, I don't even know if there's a name for this little groove directly under the nose above the lip, but the suggestion was that, that would, the lip was sort of pulled up over the nose to close the nose and uh -huh. allow the, the creature to dive. Right. It kind of makes sense. I mean, shellfish are, you know, a very nice food resource. Uh, you're out there wading in, the, wading in the shallows. That's going to make you want to stand up. You know, if you're a more upright individual genetically, your, your genes are more likely to be passed on. And it makes it easier to stand up because you're buoyant. You're buoyant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Humans, uh, just to run through some of the points in, in the argument, humans are the only primate where infants know to hold their breath when they're underwater. Exactly. You drop a monkey or any ape in the water, it just drowns. Right, right. Babies hold their breath. Instantly How do they know hold that? their breath and, and, and even feel comfortable underwater yeah. in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the buoyancy of babies. They're mm -hmm. born with all that fat. Babies yeah. float. Right. Why, right. why would babies really float? Really hard to sink them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like battleships. God knows we've tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, there are a whole bunch of points she makes uh, in, in that argument. Uh, the oil glands on our necks yeah. and faces and shoulders mm -hmm. uh, to protect against the sun. Um, a whole bunch of, oh, the uh, the salinity of tears. We're the only ape or, or primate that has saltwater tears. That cry saltwater tears. Yeah. 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 To me, these are really intriguing, intriguing issues that have been raised. And again, you know, that particular thesis has been accused of being pseudoscience and has yeah. been and has been attacked and ridiculed. Why? Because it it goes up against an entrenched interest right, in right. the in the field of the study of they're, the human They're part. so wedded to the narrative. Yeah. And, and you can understand, someone who spent a lifetime of work embedded in that narrative doesn't want to hear that it's all been a waste. Definitely and not. That's a terrible thing to De hear. Def definitely not. And and it's a, it's a curious feature of the, hum the human creature, how important ideas are to us. Yeah. Ideas are not things, but they behave like things. Yeah. They, they act like things, um, and, and they can lead to enormous problems. So the ideas about God uh, lead to global conflict and lead to people yeah. murdering one another. There's no proof that any of those ideas are correct, but, but yeah. they might be or they might not be. Um, they can't all be, at any rate, they're mutually contradictory. Uh, but yet those ideas will lead us to the most extreme behavior in defense of the idea. Yeah. And that suggests that, uh, that we as individuals tend to become existentially attached to particular ideas. And if the idea is attacked, then that is, is interpreted as an attack on us, a direct attack on us as a person. And that so how do triggers a territorial response, yeah. and that's what we see happening. And how do you deal with that? Because your ideas are attacked constantly, constantly. from every angle. Yeah. And you're, you're not alone, but you're certainly uh, an outlier. Yeah. 
Um, Absolutely. So how, how, how do you deal with that psychologically? Well, have I, you always been an outsider? Have I, you always in been an odd kind of way, yes, I have. I've always, I've always been an outsider. Back in the 1980s, I wrote a, a very, for example, I wrote a very critical book about foreign aid at a time when foreign aid was regarded as just a wonderful thing. You mm. didn't question it any more than you questioned motherhood. But, but um, I wrote a book called Lords of Poverty. The Freewheeling Lifestyles, Power, Prestige, and Corruption of the Multi-Billion Dollar Aid Business. Ooh. It was published in 1989. Um, and uh, I could only have written that book because I was an outsider. I was a reporter going around Africa and seeing projects. You were with The Guardian? I reported for The Guardian. I reported for the London Sunday Times. I reported the Ogaden War between Somalia and Ethiopia for the Sunday Times. And I was East Africa correspondent for The Economist for about three years. Right. Wow. Um, and and what, I, you know, what I saw uh, conflicted directly with the narrative about how helpful and amazing this stuff was um, and and uh, you know it's become an old saying now but it really did look um, like a way to get poor people in rich countries to help rich people in poor countries um, it, it didn't it didn't look like it was a very helpful thing yeah. at all so so I was an outsider when I wrote that book and that and that posture of being an outsider rather than being deeply locked into the mainstream of any of any position again comes up in the way that I deal with history or with or with consciousness issues. Did, did that sort of create a schism in your life? Did that was that the beginning of you separating from mainstream? No, views? I don't think so. I think it probably it probably goes back f further than that. I mean, what you know, I'm, I'm not a psych psychologist, so I don't know where exactly it comes from. But I, I I grew up in in southern India. I was an only child. I think aspects of aspects of my childhood experience. I was always outside. I was never central to British culture. I was right. always out on the edge of it. And you I, and Kerala? What part I was in um, Tamil Nadu. Tamil Nadu. Uh, my father oh. was a medical missionary, uh, oh, and he wow. worked as a surgeon in a, a place called the Christian Medical College in Vellore in South India. So I, I spent four oh. years of my childhood from the age of four to the age of eight there. Oh. That uh, you know, that, I think that actually had quite a profound effect on me. And I never felt myself to be part of any mainstream ever. Mm. And I still and I still don't. And and uh, I, I think that that is partly what helps me to do what I what I do. Just Did now. you go back to England then after that? After that we went to Northern Ireland and lived in lived in Northern Ireland and then wow. lived in the north of England and So you're an outsider there too. Yeah. Yeah. Always and also me. that was a war zone. It was. It was it was just on the edge of the troubles when I lived there, yeah. fifty eight to nineteen sixty two. And then after Ireland? Uh, North of England, uh -huh. um, a, a, an obscure town called Sunderland, uh -huh. in the north of England, where my dad was again a was again a doctor. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, there are, there are elements of this uh, that that have definitely had a, had an impact on the way that I write about stuff and the way that I see stuff. And, and as to responding as to how one deals with this, I think the only answer is persistence. Um, if you're if you're going to take a position which is radically different from that of whichever mainstream you're up against, um, you can expect a lot of unpleasantness, especially if you're writing books that are successful. I mean, this is something, <laughs> you know, something else to take into yeah, account because yeah. there are lots of very unsuccessful books yeah. offering alternative histories. Yeah. And the, the, what the mainstream archaeology does with those is simply ignore them. There's, yeah. there's no point in talking about them because they're not perceived as a threat. But my major crime with Fingerprints of the Gods was that the book was a global phenomenon and it was a huge success. And this alerted the antennae of, of archaeologists and their friends in the media around the world. And I was subjected to an enormous amount of attacks. Now, I don't 
want to come across as feeling sorry for myself about right. that. I think it comes with the territory. I, I, I realize this absolutely. This is something one must expect if you take a contrary position. And actually, uh, academics are in some ways quite fair because they do this to each other too. Mm. They're, 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 they operate like a sort of gangs of attack dogs. <laughs> and any yeah. new idea in yeah. science can expect to receive a pummeling uh, from from those who disagree with it and that is vaunted as part of the excellence of the scientific method that that if an idea can survive the fire of criticism for long enough uh, Then eventually that idea may may prove itself and I get that and the criticisms that I've received have Obliged me to up my game again and again. I have to look at the quality of my work I have to consider well if I'm going to make this argument Where are the criticisms going to come from and how can I prepare myself to deal with those? Yeah, you know, can I can I plan some defenses to those criticisms in in what I'm in what I'm writing but the fundamental issue is um, when you're an outsider and you're taking an outside position the fundamental issue the long story of this is are you right or are you wrong mm. uh, and in the end it's the data that's going to decide that it's the it's the evidence that's going to decide that you can you know say all you like as many times as you want but if the evidence ultimately does not support you and that, that might take 50 or 100 years to become clear then eventually your idea is going to vanish like a puff of smoke. Yeah. But if the evidence does support the extraordinary idea, we've seen again and again that eventually the extraordinary idea becomes mainstream and, and is accepted. So persistence uh, is the key. Um, and, and uh, you know, keep your fingers crossed that you're on the right track. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night in a panic that maybe you're wrong? Um, no, I don't. I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night in a panic, afraid that maybe I've made some colossal blunder yeah. or, or, or error right. in, 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 in print that I haven't realized that I've been in some way sloppy or shoddy or foolish and I've missed something really important. Which we all do, let's yeah. face it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's... Absolutely. But you, I mean, it seems to me, I, I didn't know you until an hour ago, so I certainly can't comment on what you were like 20 years ago, but it seems like if you didn't already know it, you certainly learned the the tactical uh, value of humility. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps so. I, I mean, I've, I've been taught multiple lessons in humility, as a, as a matter of fact. You know, I've, I've been, um, yeah. you know, I had, I had a whole program designed to attack me and to, and to present me in the worst possible light made by the BBC, their flagship science program, uh, Horizon, in, in 1999. I was actually warned before that show. A friend of mine in TV actually phoned me up uh, and said, you're going to get contacted by BBC Horizon. They intend to stitch you up, uh, which is a British phrase meaning, you know, destroy your mm -hmm. reputation deliberately. Uh, and please say no when they ask for an interview. Mm -hmm. So when I got the call six weeks later, I immediately said yes. That was hubris on my right. part. That was arrogance. Thought, I felt I could handle it. You could it. get away with it. Yeah, I yeah. thought I could. I, I, I was on top of the world in 1999. I felt I could manage any critic, any anything thrown at me. Not what, if they're editing Well, it. that's it, you see. Yeah. What I couldn't manage was what happened in the cutting room. Yeah. And that's why, ultimately, that was the first and only time that the BBC Horizon series has been found guilty of unfairness by the Broadcasting Standards Commission. Oh, really? Yeah. We, oh. Got, a, we got a judgment against them. Not a complete judgment, yeah. but, a, but a partial judgment, and it obliged them to re-edit the program hmm. and release a, a slightly fairer 
version of it. So I was absolutely punished for my hubris, and I and I paid a heavy price for it. And that and that that actually definitely taught me a lesson, not just a tactical lesson, but but a, but a real lesson is don't be too stuffed up and sure of yourself because you can always be taken down. And, and you and I think one of the great for me uh, one of the things I, I learned in this experience with Sex Adon is that I don't need to respond to everybody. That's true. It's very tempting to do it so. It is but tempting. It's much healthier not to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can pick and choose where you respond. Yeah. We had a thing happened uh, in response to Sex at Dawn. Someone wrote a book called Sex at Dusk, right? Which okay. is a book length refutation. I see. Of every. I didn't, every, I didn't know that. Yeah, right. yeah. So in a way, it's an honor. Well, it is I suppose. an honor. You can yeah. measure your impact by the resistance you get. You know. <laughs> but the problem, I mean, well, problem. The funny thing about it is. One of the things that they accuse us of is, um, you know, being uh, disingenuous. And mm. I, I, for example, I've been accused of making up my mm. wife. She doesn't actually exist. <laughs> we, my publisher and I created this brown African, right. you know, multicultural woman yeah. to give my cisgendered white American middle class, right. you know, cover and all. So, uh, crazy stuff. Complete bullshit. And that's and that is a you know that is a, that's actually an ideological attack upon you. That's that's yeah. using sort of dirty tricks of propaganda to try to discredit you. That's, yeah. I see yeah. that happening again and again yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but the, but the funny thing about this book, Sex at Dusk, which mm -hmm. by the way Stephen Pinker uh, blurbed, is mm -hmm. it's you know wonderful because I give a lot of shit to Stephen Pinker. Right. right. Stephen Pinker and Richard Dawkins are kind of like my punching bag. Interestingly, we share something else in common there as well. <laughs> well, what. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But but what happened with this book is that uh, some of the people who, who read Sex at Dawn and follow me online and all that read the book, and I haven't read it. And um, just because I don't, I don't want to be in that space, that mm -hmm. headspace of like anger, and anger and conflict. How, yeah, it's a horrible place to be. Yeah, it's toxic. Anyway, so some people read it, and I kept getting you know like, well, when are you going to respond to this? Mm. But I heard that when they tried to find out who the author was, mm -hmm. someone named Lynn Saxon, right. a British person, apparently, yeah. this person has absolutely no existence anywhere yeah. until the book came out. Right. There's no record of them studying anywhere right. or paying right. taxes or right. existing. Right. So it turns out Lynn Saxon is a fake name. Oh, my goodness. And no one knows who wrote the book. So the book was written under a nom de plume. Yeah. It's, um, it's specifically to uh, attack you and also commercially to write off your success. Right. Uh, that, yeah. would be, that would be part of the calculation yeah. in, producing, in producing a book like that. Yeah, it's disturbing when things it's, like that happen. Or, or amusing, depending or, or how or you amusing, look at it. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, when we're, when we're getting into uh, detailed debate and actually attacking the position of somebody else, it's cowardly for the person who does that attack to hide behind an omniplume. It's better that they Well, and also, what's the, what's the danger? What's I mean, danger I'm not yet? sending death threats to anyone. Exactly. You know, I, I don't give a shit exactly. if you disagree with me. Like, and I'm not in a position to ruin anyone's career. No. no. So I don't really see... Unless it was a collection, unless it was maybe someone who's quite prominent who mm. doesn't want to be seen as engaging, mm. you know, mm. like, it could be, it could be, it could be that. It would be a good piece of detective work to find out who that yeah. individual is. I'd love yeah. to know. Anyone listening yeah. who wants to track it down, jump on that. Yeah. The thing, the problem I have with Stephen Pinker and Richard Dawkins and and what I call the neo Hobbesian crowd mm. is that what the, they are engaging in political 
propaganda, Absolutely. and they're calling it science. Yeah, uh, 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 almost a, almost political propaganda at the level of a kind of fanatical religious belief, I would say. Well, certainly you're talking about the, the fanatical atheism. Yeah. It, yeah, atheism is a form of religion yeah. in the sense that it's a belief in an unevidenced proposition. It's a certainty. There yeah. is no certainty. There is no certainty. Yeah. And yeah. expressing it as a certainty is, is fundamentally untrue. Um, I uh, had an interesting encounter with Richard Dawkins when he came and spoke in the public library in my hometown of Bath in England. Um, he was uh, presenting a book, actually he'd written it for children, I think, called The Magic of Reality. And um, I popped up uh, with a question, which I recorded and later put on YouTube, um, asking Richard Dawkins if he would be willing to, as a scientist, to challenge his view of reality uh, by uh, drinking ayahuasca. <laughs> um, since uh, great the, question. The, the, the shamans who use ayahuasca in the Amazon uh, feel that it does open up other levels of reality that they refer to as a, as a spirit world, would he be willing to engage with that? And um, he's a very clever political operator, oh, very yeah. fast on his feet. And yeah. um, he responded politely and pleasantly, and he said, yes, that would be interesting. I, I, I might be willing to engage with that if, it were, if I could be assured that no harm would come to me and it was in a proper medical setting. Um, but he's never followed that up. I, I know for a fact he's been approached. Um, I don't know whether he received those approaches, but I know people who are working with psilocybin and with ayahuasca have attempted to approach him and offer him the opportunity in a safe setting to take this. As I say, I don't know if he's ever received those offers, but so far he's not, he's not done it. I think it would be actually a very interesting issue uh, if Richard Dawkins were to, uh, I, I, one, one session would not be enough, but, but perhaps a dozen sessions of ayahuasca uh, over a period of a month or two. It would be very interesting to see what he comes out with afterwards. It might not change his position at all. It might do. I, w I would go further and say that the, the drug of choice would actually be smoked DMT. Uh, for Richard Dawkins because there's no negotiation with DMT. You can't exert your powerful will and stop it once you hit the particular dose. And, and in general, um, I think a lot of the materialist faction of science would benefit from profound psychedelic experiences. They might mm. construe them in terms of their material point of view, but they might, it might challenge that a little bit. I love the, the period in late 50s, early 60s before LSD was made illegal when it was marketed to uh, psychologists and psychiatrists as a psychotomimetic. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's something very noble and beautiful about a psychiatrist uh, taking LSD as a way to better understand the experience of their psychotic patients. Yeah. There's yeah. something courageous and deeply beautiful and very much in alignment with the shamanic practices, sure. yeah. where it's yeah. the shaman who takes the drug yeah. in order to better understand what, what you're dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. There, was a, there was an interesting period of, of, you know, quite fascinating research, which was stopped dead by the horrible, evil war on drugs, you know, which is a terrible yeah. mistake that humanity, the modern society has made, which is quite out of step with all the rest of the human story. Yeah, I, you know, I sort of blame Timothy Leary for some of that. Yeah. Uh, talk he, about hubris. Yeah, yeah, he went too far. Yeah. Too, too fast, too far, and, and very hubrisistic, yeah. Too. And there was, the, there was the Aldous Huxley wing mm. saying, you know, let's, let's distribute this among the intelligentsia mm. and mm. artists and, you know, people mm. who we mm. know can handle it. And uh, there, there was some amazing stuff happening. There. I think a lot of it, uh, you know, a lot of it was done with, with 
tremendously goodwill and with yeah. positive intent. What what uh, what it unfortunately allowed was uh, for centralized governments to create another witch hunt uh, to to identify and to blow up in the public imagination drugs as some kind of existential threat to society yeah. Yeah. and then we have this this war on drugs it really gets my hackles up every time I hear the phrase war on this or war on that and it's yeah. you know it's purely Orwellian really they're about they're they're they're, they're creating an internal enemy uh, to attack uh, to it, fundamentally to strengthen their own position to and, justify and, their existence and, and the cost of this has been enormously expanded armed bureaucracies which have a right to enter our deepest areas of, of privacy and break down our doors and destroy our lives. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, it has uh, empowered and enriched criminal gangs uh, all around the way. It's just so obviously, so patently yeah. obviously, a really, really bad idea uh, <laughs> that it's, that it's, it's astonishing yeah. uh, how long our society has stuck with it now, 40, 50 years of this absurd, absurd enterprise, pointless enterprise. Well, see, I would argue much further than that, because yeah. I, I think it goes back, I, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how all systems want to perpetuate themselves mm -hmm. and survive. Mm -hmm. So when you have a, a governmental system that we can trace back to, you know, Hobbes, Leviathan, basically mm -hmm. saying you need a state because without the state, we would tear each other apart. We exactly. are chimpanzees with a tiny veneer of civil training to keep us from each that's other's the throats. They purvey, that's yeah. the myth that Steven Pinker is still purveying yeah, yeah. today with, you know, his the better angels of our nature saying that, oh, we live in this wonderful time, there's so little violence, but he doesn't, mm. you know, well, I won't get into Steven Pinker. <laughs> I'll just rant for an hour with that. Um, but the, you know, this idea that we, we are innately evil, yeah. which is original sin, yeah. right? Basically a biblical idea. Yeah. And you, you read these books like Demonic Males yeah. and, you know, all those bloodthirsty primate yeah. origins of yeah. war and rape and murder. They never mention bonobos. Right. Never right. mention right. them. Right. right, right. How do you write a whole book arguing mm. for the primate origins of human behavior and mm. never mention one of the two mm. primates we're most closely related to? It's yeah. not science. It's, it's, definitely, it's propaganda. It's definitely not science. It's, 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 it's pure. It's pure propaganda. Okay. And it ignores so much, so much evidence. I mean, actually, hunter-gatherer cultures are not big on warfare. Right. They don't, they don't do that. It's they don't have accumulated resources. No. There's nothing to fight over. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and this has been the case throughout, throughout history. Uh, what actually does endanger us and make the world a very dangerous place is the behavior of states and governments. Right. They, uh, they, and they are empowered with vast quantities of public money, yeah. which, are, which are spent on very dangerous toys. Um, and, and, and so every time I hear a government telling me it's going to make me safer, it makes me want to run a mile because I know that actually what it means is they're going to make me much less safe yeah. with every policy they implement. They don't yeah. make us safer. And it's about not trusting, uh, not trusting the human creature. Not, it's, it's, it, as you say, it's about a, a view of what humanity is. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a whole other view. Uh, about about humanity, which is not being allowed to flourish, in, which in happens to be you know have the advantage of being true. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a beautiful book by Rebecca Solnit called a "Paradise Built in Hell," right. and it's a study. Uh, she she interviews people who have experienced disasters, mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. it be uh, war or earthquakes or whatever, all over the world. Right. And she also um, reports with. Uh, um, uh, scientists, there's a whole disaster studies realm in, in mm -hmm. sociology. 
And there's this amazing quote from one, the sort of the lead, the, the guy who founded Disaster Studies. Mm. And he says that based upon his 40 years of research, his conclusion is that disasters are often generally remembered as the best times in people's lives for the survivors yeah. because they come together right. they you're helping your neighbor yeah. you're you're you know it's this feeling if you the thing people describe after 9/11 in right. New York like right. suddenly everyone was saying hello in the street yes. and offering you food yeah. and take you yeah. to you can sleep at my place if you're everything there is a sense of community that yeah. is is it, it's normal for hunter gatherers yeah. that's how hunter gatherers live that's yeah. how we evolved to live yeah. exactly. but so it, what this guy says is the disaster is normal life right that's right. where people are isolated yeah. that's yeah. where they have no communication and yeah. Just, yeah i would say i would say that's abs yeah. that's absolutely true the 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 way that the way that society is structured now is is deeply harmful yeah. to everything that really matters about the human creature uh, not to say it's all bad, you know. No. I, I'm I'm here with um, with an artificial hip, a metal hip that was uh, the result of surgery in 2013. Before I had that surgery, I, I was paral I was literally in so much pain, yeah. I couldn't walk. So I, I don't reject technology. But if you'd been squatting to shit your whole life, you might not. I have probably needed wouldn't that have either. had that problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. See, that's the other thing. Yeah. People say, "Oh, but we've got vaccines." Like, yeah, that's like saying we've got airbags. Yeah. People weren't driving cars twenty thousand yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. You know, they no, didn't no, quite, have quite, quite, quite right. I mean, many of the many of the problems are caused by our our lifestyle, yeah. uh, the lifestyle that we that we lead. But I think if we, I think if we're to move forward from this complex and and rather disturbing state of affairs that the modern world finds itself in, uh, we're going to have to find a way that that doesn't reject technology utterly. Right. That has to be part of the of the story. There, and, yeah. But it, the problem is that it's over-dominant at the moment. Uh, and, and what's associated with it is a particular state of consciousness, which I call the alert problem-solving state of consciousness. That is over-dominant in our society. Nothing against it as a state of consciousness in itself, but it shouldn't have an over-monopolistic place. There are many other states of consciousness that are valuable to the human creature, which are being marginalized and, and dismissed at present. Yeah, there's, you know, I in this book, one of the arguments I make is that you know, we're not going back. There's no, we're not going back. There's Unless 90% of human population yeah. disappears yeah. suddenly, we're not going back. Yeah. Um, so we're going to live in an artificial environment. But if you own a zoo, mm. and you're a good person mm. who owns a zoo, which is a problematic you mm -hmm. know, idea in itself, but you want to design the enclosures in the way that best replicates the natural environment of the animal. Sure. So if we're going to live in an artificial environment, which mm. we are, mm. let's at least... Mm. Study the animal, which mm. is us, mm. mm. hunter-gatherers, absolutely, and recreate to the best of our abilities the natural environment, okay. social, uh, diet, exercise, everything. That's uh, a very nice thought, and that's a very practical proposition as exactly. well. Exactly, it you could would... lead to to definite action in certain in certain areas. Right. Instead of instead of living in these often you know soulless and and really unpleasant urban environments where yeah. we can't even see the sky. Right. You know, the, the, our connection to the cosmos is just blotted out by yeah. light pollution, and and it's a most unfortunate. Speaking thing. of the sky, here's here's something you've I'm sure you've thought of this. I'd love to get your your ideas. Do you know who Andrew Weil is? He's an alternative medical practitioner. I've come across the name. I don't know a lot about his work. He's he's a very interesting man. He um, studied at Harvard with uh, 
what's his name, the, the famous scientist who, st who discovered all these hallucinogenic plants um, in, in the Amazon, uh, one river by Wade Evan Davis. Schultes. Uh, yeah, Richard Evan Schultes, yes, exactly. Yes. So Andrew Weil, fascinating guy. He, he went to Harvard, super smart, went yeah. to Harvard, undergrad, uh, studied botany. Yeah. But he knew he wanted to be a doctor, but right. he studied botany, right. not pre-med. Sure. Then he got into Harvard Med School, uh, residency at UMass, mm -hmm. uh, Mass General Hospital, mm -hmm. you know, top of the line, top of the line all the way. Then he went and got a job at the National Institutes of Health in mm -hmm. Bethesda. And, but this is 1968, 69 mm -hmm. in there. And he, he took uh, psilocybin mm -hmm. with uh, Leary and Alpert and all mm -hmm. that. In fact, he was instrumental in Leary getting in trouble because mm -hmm. um, Andrew Wah was writing for the Harvard Crimson and he wrote it saying that he thought Leary was being irresponsible by right. passing this stuff out indiscriminately right. and whatever. Right. Um, Anyway, I won't get into Andrew Wiles' thing, but he, he uh, wrote a few books about consciousness, mm -hmm. one of which was called The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon. Nice and then later in his, uh, in his career, he got into alternative medicine, talking about Chinese medicine mm -hmm. and what he calls integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. And then he was on Oprah and sold a million right. books. And right. Right. Anyway, he and I have been friends for a long time. And in The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, each chapter is about a different mind-altering experience. Okay. Many of them are about mushrooms, mm -hmm. uh, heroin, mm -hmm. but then there's also sugar, mm -hmm. um, vomiting, mm -hmm. orgasm, mm -hmm. uh, and one, the last chapter is about solar eclipse. Mm. And he talks about how different cultures re react fearfully to mm -hmm. the solar eclipse, including mm -hmm. our own, mm -hmm. that tells us that you'll go blind if you look at it. Actually, so. you won't. A, right. a full solar eclipse, there's no uh, gamma right. rays or whatever it is going directly into your eyes. Yeah. But the point he makes in that is that the sun, which is so much larger than the earth, mm. millions of times larger than mm. the earth, and the moon, which is a fraction of the size of the earth, mm. have this bizarre relationship to the earth, the mm. only planet on which there's any mm. conscious mm. beings to mm. see this, where they appear to be exactly the same size in yeah, the sky. So that the moon can eclipse the sun. It is, it is a very odd thing, uh, uh, what, you know, were it, were it 50,000 miles closer or 50,000 miles further away, that would not happen. Exactly. Um, and, there's, it, and there's no, there's no physical reason for that. Yeah. You know, from yeah. the surface of Jupiter, yeah. the moons don't block the sun. There's no, no, there's there's no, no, there's no reason physical for reason for it. But, 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 but oddly enough, it's part of what makes life on Earth plausible and, and, and possible, that we have our moon, actually, and that it is, and that it is where it is. Uh, I don't want to get all kind of woo-woo here, but there is, a, <laughs> there is a curious thing, which is that in English miles, the diameter of the moon is 2,160 miles. Um, and 2160 happens to be part of a sequence of numbers that is found in ancient mythology uh, all around the world. Um, it's a multiple of 72, 72 right. times 30. Right. Uh, it's the number of years that one house of the zodiac is considered to define the character of the age by housing the sun on the, on, on the spring equinox. And there was a great, very detailed, in-depth study of this done by... Uh, Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha von Deschend. Giorgio de Santillana was a serious guy. He was professor of the history of science at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 
Uh, and he argued that these numbers in ancient myth all derived from observation of a hard-to-observe phenomenon called precession of the equinoxes, mm. which unfolds at the rate of one degree every 72 years. So it's just odd that mythology, which again and again incorporates the number 2160 or multiples of 72, that we find the moon has that has that diameter as well. Probably a total coincidence. I'm, I'm think, I think well, the origin of the, the length mile of a is mile. not really known about. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they take it back to to Romans and to and 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 to the Roman foot and. And, and mm. issues like this, but but actually, if you look at um, if if you look into this in depth, the origins of the English mile recede into antiquity and disappear from view mm. in certain in certain ways. So probably it's a coincidence, but it's fascinating that that it's the case. And there the moon sits, and it perfectly eclipses the sun. Yeah. Uh, and and our planet is nicely tilted on its axis, so we get seasons and. You know, it's a, a really very, up. very blessed situation. Whether whether there's anything mysterious behind it or not, we're incredibly lucky to live on this. Well, there is planet. something mysterious behind. It. That's of course, the thing. Yeah, you know, there I is. mean, there's everything is enveloped in mystery. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge mystery. Being alive is a mystery. Being in a human body is a, is a, is a mystery. What we're yeah. all doing, it's all, it's all a mystery. And I, I personally like that sense of mystery mm. and engagement with mystery. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't like. It when people say, oh, it's all sorted out and settled and forever, there's nothing more we need to learn about this. Because the history of science again and again has shown there's always something more we need to learn about everything. Actually. Yeah, whether you're looking on a larger scale or a smaller scale, yeah. It's, yeah. it's all completely. Are you familiar with the Henry David Thoreau's uh, line about the pyramids? Tell me it. Oh, it's wonderful. Here, I, I, he says, this is in Walden, yeah. he says, as for the pyramids, there's nothing to wonder at them so much as the fact that so many men could be found degraded enough to spend their lives constructing a tomb for some ambitious booby whom it would have been wiser and manlier to have drowned in the Nile and then given his body to the dogs. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Thoreau there, uh, and I don't blame him, is buying into uh, what has been the established view of what the pyramids are for yeah. the last 150 years or so. Um, which is the, the, the and the established view is that the pyramids are tombs and tombs only mm. uh, for egomaniacal pharaohs. Uh, what's not widely known is that there isn't a single pyramid in Egypt where an intact burial of a pharaoh has been found. Uh, and indeed, in some pyramids where they've opened sealed chambers, they found the sarcophagus within the chamber to be empty. Mm. Uh, it's an it's an astonishingly flimsy case to argue that the pyramids were built as tombs. Uh, there's no real evidence for it at all, particularly with the three great pyramids of Giza. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's a prejudice, it's an ideological position on the part of Egyptologists, it isn't a fact. Uh, and, and also, one hears again and again, uh, the 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 old um, story that the pyramids were built by slaves. Yeah, such nonsense. Really, such complete and utter crap. That is. Uh, I've had the privilege to climb the Great Pyramid five times. I've been in every known nook and cranny of the Great Pyramid. I know it really like the back of my hand. And, and there is no way on earth that slave labor was involved in that majestic, perfect construction. That is the work of master stonemasons at the 
peak of their skills, at the absolute limit of their skills, doing the very, very best that they could possibly do. It isn't the grudging work of unskilled slaves whipped on by an overseer. Uh, they'd never have got their pyramid built if that were the case. Um, and also there's very little evidence, indeed none, of slavery in the Old Kingdom anyway. Uh, it happened later in the, in the New Kingdom. So it's just one of those nonsenses that spread around and that people, people pick up. I don't think we understand what the functions of the Giza pyramids are. Um, Egyptology has resisted the notion that they reflect the patterns of certain stars on the ground. Robert Boval's work on the, the connection between the belt of Orion and the three, the three pyramids. Anybody can see the resemblance immediately if you look at the sky, look at the belt of Orion. The way those three stars lie in the sky is exactly the way the three pyramids lie on the ground. Um, well, the, the criticism has been, well, yeah, obviously, I mean, you can pick any three buildings in any city and line them up with stars in the sky. But then we have to remember that the constellation of Orion was highly significant to the ancient mm. Egyptians. It was seen as the celestial image of the god Osiris who rules over the, the afterlife realm, the, the yeah. duat through which our souls must travel after death. So I think if the pyramids are anything at all, they're certainly not tombs. I believe that they were part of a, an ancient system that the ancient Egyptians used. The whole, the whole objective was to transcend material life and to achieve spiritual immortality. I'm not saying that they did that, but I'm saying that that appears to me to justify the giant effort that was made in the construction of these pyramids. So they, yes, they are associated with death, but not as places of burial for mm. a particular pharaoh. Right. The wow. region of the sky, by the way, the, the Duat was a region of the sky for the ancient Egyptians, and it's dominated by the constellation of Orion and by the Milky Way. You uh, cover this in Fingerprints of the Gods. I went into it in Fingerprints yeah, of the Gods, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, um, I, I see no reason to change my views. The, the, these were not tombs. These were part of something much, much bigger than that. In the Piri Reis map you talked about in Fingerprints, you open with that, don't you? In yeah, I open with that, yeah. That, that has stuck with me. That, that it just blows my mind. Mm. So, well, that's where we, read, we, we began this conversation talking about maps, what might yeah. an advanced civilization have been, what could right. we have done. Well, that's, that's one of the documents we have where we know that older source maps were in circulation and were being used because Piri Reis tells us directly in his own handwriting on the map that it's based on more than 100 older source maps. So the map, just for people who aren't familiar with this, the map shows a coastline, a very detailed coastline. Yeah, the map, was, the map was drawn in 1513 by a known historical figure. He was an admiral in the Turkish Navy. He was later beheaded, as a matter of fact. But in 1513, he drew this map. And, mm. and he tells us, because he writes in his own handwriting on it, that he based it on 100 older source maps, which he had taken out of the Library of Constantinople. But he speculates that those maps had come originally from the Library of Alexandria and had been brought to Constantinople. Mm. Um, and, and what we have now of the Piri Reis map is itself only a fragment. He, he drew a world map. We're left with only a part of it which shows the west coast uh, of Africa and the east coast of South America and a bit of the east coast of North America. Um, and it manifests quite a number of features that would only have been visible during the Ice Age, particularly uh, an island, a prominent island is shown on that map, uh, which has a row of megaliths running up it. And in exactly the right area, uh, if you go diving today, 
you can find that row of megaliths. It's called the Bimini Road. Oh, and, yeah, um, it, in it the Bahamas. In the Bahamas, and it was covered by rising sea levels at the end of the Ice Age. But lo and behold, there it appears on the map with a row of megaliths that look exactly right like the Bimini Road running up the middle of it, suggesting that the original source map was made at a time when that island was, uh, was, was above water. And there's a reference to Antarctica. There is a reference to Antarctica, and this, um, th this is obviously a very controversial issue, but the southern tip of the map uh, shows South America running into something else, uh, which extends away out of sight beyond the bottom of the map, and that is in the right place for Antarctica. And that's very puzzling, um, because our civilization didn't discover Antarctica until the year 1818. Um, so to find it on a map drawn in 1513 based on older source maps should raise questions, particularly since it's not alone. There's lots of other maps. The Orontius Phineas map drawn in 1531, again based on older source maps. Quite a number of the Mercator maps as well, drawn in the 1500s, show Antarctica in exactly the right place, a bit bigger than it is today, but, but that would, would have been so during the Ice Age. Um, and and the, to me, the, the scholarly response to this is really lacking in, in any kind of strength. They say, oh, well, people just imagined that there must be a continent there. So they, they stuck it there on, on the South Pole. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. and, and I don't find that satisfying. I, yeah. I, feel, I feel that we should listen to what we're being told, that there were older source maps and that it looks like somebody mapped the world a really, really long time ago. That's why I think it's a great mystery, and, and, and I, still, I still regard it as a mystery. I've done further work on the maps in subsequent books, but mm. it's, it's, still not, it's still not settled in my, in my mind. But it's one of the clues, it's one of those haunting uh, hints of something missing from the story that come down to us from the past. Do you think the world would be very different if Alexandria Library had survived? I rather think it would, yeah. I think it would make a great difference. Whether, whether the treasures of knowledge in that library would have been monopolized by particular power elites mm. and, not, and not released into the public domain, it's hard to say. Um, but I think we lost a, we lost a whole uh, archive of the human story at that time, and it's partly why we are a species with amnesia, because we keep losing our records. And the records we're making today, uh, actually, may be easily lost, uh, the, the, the digital records that we make today. Oh, yeah. You know, Very I know horrible. efforts are being made to ensure that the software will exist a thousand years from now that can decode the digital, but I don't, I don't believe Come it. Come on, I, I, I lose everything every time I update Office, you exactly. know? Exactly. <laughs> it's, like it's a giant pain in the ass. Listen, I know you are talked out. You've been, uh, you're on this mega book tour. You were, Indeed. I looked at your schedule recently. You were in Colorado. You're going to Vancouver next, right? I'm going to Vancouver tomorrow and then to Minneapolis and then back into Canada to Toronto and then to New York and then finally home to, finally home to England. So I've been on the road since the, the 8th of November. It's, a, it's, a, it's, been a, it's been a long haul, but it's fascinating. It's great. I've been all over the United States. I've talked to audiences in 20 cities and, um, Everywhere I go, I find, I find people who are awake and aware and who are asking big questions about the past and about the present. Are you getting the kind of crowd that you got last night? Everywhere I've gone. That's I've, amazing. I've I, 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 went, I have to thank you know, our mutual friend, yeah, Joe Rogan, who's sure. played a huge role in yeah. spreading the word. Yeah, about, well, about he's a huge book. fan. Yeah. yeah. He's, and a brilliant guy, and he's really you know, using his outreach, outreach well. So yeah, there have been packed out events everywhere we've gone. Um, often against the predictions 
dimensions of the of the book trade. Yeah, well, let's not get into that. That's a whole other conversation, though. <laughs> Which we shouldn't have online. Yeah, yeah. Unless unless we're gonna self-publish, I think I think people. People like you, me, and, and some other people I know, and, and I'm sure you know a few, I think we should get together and form a coalition of authors who have been you know, unhappy with the treatment we've gotten from publishers. Because the only thing we need to do is deal with distributors. That's it. And if that's, you've that's got the only five or six... that publishing still fulfills. Right. I mean, you hire your own editor, you design your yeah. own cover, you know, like do yeah. your own stuff, and then, uh, well, we'll talk about that that's later. The, that's the way forward. Right? Yeah, I think yeah. it is. Independence. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, tell us your website where people okay, can... Okay, so it's grahamhancock.com, G-R-A-H-A-M-H-A-N-C-O-C-K.com. And right. everything is on there. The links to my author Facebook page, links about the book, information about the book, and other work that I do, it's all on there. Good. Okay, I'm going to put this up uh, this weekend, so it'll it'll be the next episode that goes up. So hopefully people will hear it and go, go see you if they're Fantastic. not already planning to. Get there early if you want to see it. I got there a little late last night. I couldn't even see you. It <laughs> It was incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's very, it's very heartwarming for me to get yeah. this kind of reception, Definitely. and particularly to see a lot of young people in there, in the, in that audience, who are, you know, who are seeing a connection between uh, the way that our past has been told to us and the way that our present is being told to us, yeah. and and who connect the two issues that we need to, we need to make changes in the present, and if we're going to do that, we need to understand the past better. You know, you mentioned uh, that we live in a society with amnesia. Uh, I'm. I've been thinking a lot recently that we live in a civilization that has PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, yeah. which could relate to the, the events that you yes, and uh, Randall were talking about, yeah. the, the impacts, the, the megafauna extinction, yeah. that's another thing yeah. you and I agree on. I have no doubt now our species went through something really bad between yeah. 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, and it would be astonishing if there were no... Um, memory of that at all. There is a memory, yeah. but it's a haunting memory, and it's troubled, and it's blocked in well, many and it, places. It's, it's the expulsion from paradise. Yeah, it's that. You know, it's uh, it's agriculture, it's civilization. But more and more, I'm starting to see agriculture and civilization as a last-ditch survival response mm. to something else, as opposed to the thing itself. That's a really interesting point. That's yeah. a really interesting point that you're making there. Have you? There's a book called "My Name Is Chellis, and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization. Oh, it sounds like a great book. It's an old book. It's you know, maybe 20 years old. It's Chellis Glendening, right. who is a um, psychotherapist, yeah. and she really gets into this idea that Western civilization shows all the symptoms of PTSD. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Which, does. which is why what you were saying earlier is so important. Um, I think that um, hallucinogens. Mm -hmm psychedelics, whatever you want to call them, are so useful in the treatment of PTSD. Absolutely. And on a cultural level, could actually maybe help the culture They get, may get be the one together. thing, properly used, responsibly used, with the right intent in the right yeah. setting, they may be the one thing that could give this lockdown culture the huge kick up the ass it needs yeah. to put itself back on the right track. We'll end it there. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Thank you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day.
to the ground. 